Let's take our Bibles and go to James chapter 1, James chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Glad to be back with you guys today. Heard Dr. Wheeler hit another grand slam last week. Yeah? Heard he was literally walking all up these aisles, and so if you were here last week and you're still freaked out about that, you maybe should be. Um, we went down to, to visit family. Hannah, our niece, turned two years old this past weekend, and her older brother Micah will be four in September. I don't know how old that makes him right now, but we were, um, we were down there hanging out with them, and we were completely unsupervised at this point. I said, do you guys want to go outside? Yeah, yeah, you know, they want to go outside, and so we went outside and said, do you want to find bugs? And when you say something like that to kids, they're like, yes. And so, so what we did is we found bugs with Uncle Beth. And then when you look for bugs in Florida, you usually find something else, lizards. And so I thought it would be a good time to give a nature biology lesson. So I caught the lizard and I said, I know it would be fun. I'm going to let the lizard bite me on the finger. And at that point, I noticed a little difference in personalities. Hannah, who's turning two, starts going, ooh, like going crazy. And Micah, because he maybe different personality, he doesn't like seeing pain inflicted on others, or maybe he's just older and he knows it bites, you're going to let it bite you, bad idea. So I get the lizard and I start bringing it close to my finger and it's just wide open. It's mad and ticked off. And so he starts pulling my arm and going, no, could you have, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Hannah, ah! Like we know who the barbarian's going to be in that duo. So I, I bring the lizard close and I let it clamp down on my finger and I shouldn't have done it. But the second it did it, I start going, ah, ah! You know, and she's, ah! And he's freaking out. Oh, good job. No, no, it hurt you. It hurt you. And then I told him that it really doesn't hurt, but you probably shouldn't go catch lizards and let them bite you because your mom, even though she's sweet, she knows your dad is a firearms owner. I'll just leave it at that. You know, and, I, and I thought about that and, and preparing to talk about what we're going to go into today, and that's the topic of stress. The topic of stress. I said, you know, it could have been, it could have been, and they are definitely wired differently. And isn't it cool to see, those of you who have children, to see the different wiring in each one of them? Like some of you say, it was she or he was the easiest baby. I mean, they did not, it, it was fine, whatever happened, they could just roll with that. And then, well, the, the other one, I mean, the moment they came out of the, room, the womb, they were just filled with rage and angst at the world. And so it's been a patience building time with him or her. We still love him in the Lord, right? I don't know if it was that. Or maybe it was that he was a little bit older and he knew that when certain things happen, pain can happen. And pain is not good. In his mind, and I thought about stress, you know, the older you get, the more real life seems to become. When we were little kids, a whole lot of what we know today, we had no clue even exists. True? But when we get older, it seems like the weight of, of finances and the economy, geopolitical issues, political issues. If y'all haven't noticed, there's a little bit of tension in the U.S. right now surrounding a certain event the first week of November this year. There's a little bit of tension there. 
And then there's the tension if you if you if you or you're married to have safety for your family to make sure that there's sufficient finances there. It seems like the older you get, the more stress can just lock in its teeth and its fangs, and we get more burdened, more burdened, burdened, and burdened. And then some of us have noticed what happens if something does not alleviate that burden, we eventually snap. We're not going to ask for a show of hands. And when we snap, often the people that are closest to us and the people that we love most, those are the ones who are most hurt. But the Bible speaks time and time again of trials, of tribulations, and those things honestly make normal American type of stress look very, very small. So what we want to do this morning is take a look at James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and that will kind of give us a watershed understanding of how to view everything from guilt, stress, a lack of contentment, or just general pressure from life. The Bible begins in James chapter 1 and verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the, in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet or when you fall into trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing." By the way, verse 2, the first part of it, is possibly one of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible. Because it says, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various types of trials. So here's the question, what, what is a trial exactly? Well, a trial is an external circumstance that slowly works its way in. Where, on the other hand, you could say a temptation is something that's inside of us that works itself out. Now let me just say, and this is in your notes, that Jesus, through James, giving inspiration for the Bible here, he's not talking about sinful, selfish mistakes that we make, seeds that we sow, and then when the, roost, when it, when the chickens come home to roost, say, oh, well, I'm suffering for Jesus. If you're taking notes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 tells us, don't suffer like an unbeliever. In other words, don't act selfishly and sinfully to where you will reap things on yourself that will keep you from doing the will of God. What the Bible's talking about here is things that happen to us that are out of our control. Now notice it says also, it says in verse 2, count it all joy. What's it say? If you fall into various trials, what's it say? It says, when. This means that for a follower of Jesus Christ, falling into trials and tribulations, that is not something that may happen. It's something that will happen. And life is already difficult enough, amen? Like, it just is. And we, don't, we could preach sermon after sermon on why it's difficult, but the point is that life itself is just simply hard. And when you sign up to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it means that you set your life against the flow. 
For those of you who do fly fishing, you know sometimes if the river is heavy, if the current is strong, it can be very difficult to walk against the current. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It means that the day that you surrender your life to Christ, it is the day that if you thought you got misunderstood before, buddy, it's about to hit the fan. Especially if, you're, if most of your friends don't, if they don't know Christ, if you come from an unchurched family, because they'll be like, what has gotten into you? Like, I don't understand this. It's the first thing that will probably happen is people will misunderstand you. Because when you sign up to follow Jesus Christ, you will be facing the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is a life of trials. So how does the Bible say we should respond to trials when they happen? Notice what the Bible says again. Consider it or count it all joy. In the original language, this is an imperative. An imperative is when your mom uses your middle name. It means it's not an option. This is the divine inspired word of God. And this is crazy that the Bible tells me that whenever things happen that are trials, it says add them all up. And when they produce this equation that says this is bad, this will be painful. This is going to be a horrific stretching time in my life. The Bible says what comes after the equal sign is joy. Crazy or no? Like we can be real. Like, no, it's in the Bible, Brother Jeff. I believe that. Come on. It says that you add together all of the things that happen that any rational person would say, I don't want that to happen to me. Somebody leaves you. You lose your job. The doctor says, we found something on the scan. Someone betrays you. Financial pressures. Are you serious, Jeff, that you're telling me that the Bible says that the conclusion for experiencing all of those things is joy? Absolutely. And here's the skinny of the reason why. The reason is because the point of life is not our circumstantial happiness. Y'all okay? The point of God giving us this thing called life. You ever thought about that? Like, what is this thing called life? The reason why He gave it to us is so that we could be saved and so that we could become more like Jesus so that when people see us, they'll see the glory of God through our life. And that will give evidence depart, separate from philosophical arguments, separate from historical arguments, separate from apologetics, separate from all of those things that we can use to say there is a God. They can look at your life and say, man, there has got to be something behind that person. The reason why God has created us is to bring glory to Him. And honestly, if we can just scale off the church stuff here, the way that God most often gets glory is through our patient endurance of horrific things. None of us have probably bought a book or would even want to to say, here's my perfect life and how nothing has ever gone wrong and how you probably are not like me even if you try. That appeals to no one. But we look at Jesus, and Jesus suffered more than any person could. 
But yet it's Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection that provides the foundation for how to understand and experience suffering. And when the word says here, fall into trials, it's used in a way, uh, if you're taking notes, in Luke chapter 10, verse 30, when it says that there was a man who fell among robbers. In Acts 27, 41, it's used when it describes a ship that struck a reef. It means just the general trajectory of your life. You're working hard. You're paying your bills. You're trying to get caught up. You're loving your wife. You're loving your husband imperfectly, but you're following Jesus the best you know how. And all of a sudden, you run into a reef that you had no way of knowing that was there. So what kind of trials are we to consider all joy? The word here, various, literally means multicolored. It means any type of thing that you could consider to be a trial, the Bible says count that all joy. Why? Well, because the point of our life is not to get circumstantial happiness. It's not all about enjoying it here. It's about the glory of Christ. And this is a difficult thing to say. But to say, God, if my life could point people to you through my suffering, then here I am, a willing servant to be put through the gauntlet, to be put in the midst of the hottest part of the crucible so that people could see me pressurized and to say, I knew him and her before, but what I see coming out now is Jesus when it used to be something completely not. And my question to those of us who claim to be followers of Christ, are we willing to make that type of a commitment to say, like the Apostle Paul, to say, Lord, I am not a sadomasochist. I don't want to suffer. I don't enjoy pain. But I want to say, God, that hell is real and heaven is, is real. And life is so difficult that if you choose to use me as an instrument of pain and suffering so that your glory could shine for me and people could be saved, God, I don't want to go down that road. And we could find great comfort in Jesus who said, Father, this cup could pass from me, right? Jesus didn't enjoy pain, but he did it because he lived for the glory of the Father and so that people could come to know him as Savior. You say, well now, Jeff, I, I've, I've been to a church before and they say that the reason why bad things happen is because I don't have enough faith. Well, if they're right, then Jesus didn't have enough faith. The Apostle Paul was sure an A1 class, capital L, loser. Because when you read Paul, man, he got beat up by people on the outside of the church and false converts on the inside of the church. I mean, when you look at Peter, that tough, grizzled, hardcore, I mean, strong, bare hand fisherman, and you look at how that guy died... Well, apparently he didn't have enough faith. Let me just say, there's nothing more blasphemous in the United States right now than the hellish doctrine of saying that bad things happen because you don't have enough faith or the reason because you have financial problems is because of your lack of faith. And let me just go with me here. If we were to take a trip across the ocean and visit Christians in the middle of Africa and talk with Christians in the crucible of the Middle East and to talk to people in India and people in communist regimes and apply that same damnable heresy, what we would have to conclude is some of the greatest Christians who have been imprisoned and tortured and even killed for the cause of Christ in this century lack faith. 
And the, the heroes of the Christian faith would not be the persecuted church. It would be the TV preacher with his own fleet of jets. And I think that we all know which one is biblical teaching and which one is not. We're not trying to say that Rocky Mount Baptist Church is any better than another, another group, but what we're saying here, listen, is that the Bible says that when we follow Christ, we will suffer persecution. It's part of it. So if you're listening to this sermon this morning and, and God is working on your heart saying, I love you, I can save you, I want to change your life, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, then I will give you rest. I want to change you. I want to be your father. And in the back of your mind, if someone has told you that that's when your problems stop, you've been sold a truckload of bull. Let me go a step further. The Bible tells us that not only do our regular life problems not stop when we get saved, we get a whole new set of big capital P problems. Because we are standing against the current of a wicked and evil age. But in the midst of that, there's that three-letter word, joy. That God gives you that confidence to say, I am with you. You've fallen into this trial, but notice how the text continues of various kinds. And by the way, that word various kinds, multicolored, if you're taking notes, write down 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, because that word multicolored, this will preach. It's the same word that describes trials, the same word describes the grace of God. So what the Scripture's telling us is that anything that you can fall into, any group of robbers who take advantage of you, any reef that you crash into, and it takes a multicolored look, a type of suffering, the grace of God can match it. Come on! The grace of God can match any suffering that we could ever fall into. So what's the rationale of trials? What does the Bible say we're supposed to conclude from them? Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So the byproduct of suffering for a follower of Christ is the strength of Christian character, and that is an evidence of the power of God in your life. You say, now Jeff, does God tempt us? No, God doesn't tempt us. God tests us to allow us to become more dependent on him. He allowed Job to be tested so that we could have Job's story in the Bible to help us today. I remember when my, when my dad had a kidney stone and he named it Job Jr. If you've read your Bible, and here's the thing, if you're new with church, that's totally fine. Go read the story of Job. Man, he's like the A1, I mean, if you talk about suffering, Job was the guy who lost everything, but then he said, God gives, God takes away Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's another text that may be an encouragement to you if you're walking through a trial. Psalm 119, verse 71. It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. So the Bible says, count it all joy when you fall into these trials, for you know, so here's the rationale, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's a word that communicates a type of endurance, a type of patience, a type of living under a burden and living under a load. Now, I had been pastor for several years, and uh, I had never dealt with chronic pain. I mean, sometimes you get a pulled muscle, but then when I had my 
L5S1 disc shoot out right into that nerve column to where the whole right side of my leg all the way down to my heel was such blinding pain that you guys remember my testimony. I, I passed out going, trying to get to the restroom, and so I knew I was going out, so I just went ahead and went to the ground because I didn't want to hit my head. This was before I was married. I'm like, I'm gonna, they're going to like find me the next morning, you know? Like, who murdered the pastor, you know? It was horrible. But through that, God gave me something that I did not have before, and that has a genuine empathy for those people who struggle with chronic pain. And when I see brothers and sisters who I knew who had chronic pain before, I prayed for them, I tried to to encourage them, but then when I saw them still being faithful to Jesus Christ, I thought, wow, that is unbelievable. Because they have similar to the pain that I had, but sometimes even more so. And there's some cases to where swimming and chiropractic and physical therapy will not fix it. And you've been told, you will have chronic pain. We cannot do surgery. And praise God for your faithfulness. Amen? It's unbelievable to see some people and they say, Jeff, I'll I'll try to come, but I I may have to leave around noon. I don't want to. I want to stay through the invitation. I don't want to be like church members who don't care about the invitation and leave early. We may get emails about that. But say, I physically can't. I, I got to go take my medication. I've got to go stretch. May God bless you for that type of faithfulness. Because what the Bible says is the result that God is working in you is steadfastness. And notice it doesn't stop there in verse 3. Go to verse 4 with me. And let this steadfastness, let this endurance, let this patience have its full effect or its perfect, complete work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the Bible's telling us that through all of this that we will be perfect. This is where English can be a little bit confusing. Most of us, when we think of the word perfect, we think of without sin, right? Well, I guess I can't be as perfect as him. I can't, guess I can't be as perfect as her. But when you see the word perfect in the Greek New Testament, I thought this was so cool when I discovered this, that perfect, it means completeness. It means maturity. It means, if we could compare like the Apostle Paul does in 2 Timothy 2, he compares followers of Christ to soldiers. And a soldier is ready to face battle once the soldier has been trained. They don't take fresh recruits unless the whole area has been overrun into a last-ditch apocalyptic scenario. They place soldiers on the battlefield when they have been trained. They have come to that maturity. They've come to that completeness to where they are ready for use. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At this point, I'll ask my sister Vicki to make her way up here. I thought and prayed about this message. And what would be the greatest testimony in our faith family of what it means to walk through pressure and trials?
Vicki, why don't you come up here? Can you guys make her welcome? This is my good friend, Vicki Itson. All right, so for those of you who don't know me, um, I've been coming to Rocky Mount Baptist Church for about three years now. I've got three amazing boys, two that you know, Sawyer and Max. My older son, Drew, um, unfortunately doesn't come. He professes to be an atheist, but I've got loads of people praying for him, so we're hoping that will change. Before I get into what I believe Jeff wants me to talk about, just a real quick background to kind of put things in perspective. I was born into a family with an amazing, giving, loving, Christ-centered mom who took all of his kids to church every Sunday. I was there every Sunday morning. I was there Sunday night, Wednesday nights, act teens, Y teens, you name it, I was there. I was baptized into the church as a young adult, very steadfast in my beliefs. Our dad, however, was an alcoholic who was, let's just say, not very nice to his kids. We never knew what was going to set him off, and I believe it was only through our mom's faith and total dependence on God that we were able to overcome his influence. In my 20s, hung out with the wrong crowd, lost my way, stopped going to church. I still believed in God. I think I just stopped believing in heaven or hell. I was living as a good person. So fast forward to 2013. I was married to a man, wasn't very nice, was working at a job, couldn't stand it. I literally threw my hands up in the air one day and said, Jesus, take the wheel. I just can't do it. I stopped, and for the first time in a lot of years, I prayed. I walked out of my job, and I filed for divorce, and I kept praying. Through a friend, I had heard about a job as an admin and a meeting planner at an insurance company. It was supposed to be a temporary job until I found a better one, meaning better paying. My boss there is an amazing, giving, loving, Christ-centered man. The light of Christ was shown in everything he said and everything he did. He truly emulates the life of Jesus. It's because of him that I came back to church. I came to Rocky Mount Baptist Church. I asked for forgiveness, and I began living for Christ again. And I still kept praying. I was led to your doors three years ago. I think God knew what was coming my way. 2 Samuel twenty two thirty three says, God is my strength and my power, and he makes my way perfect. God knew I needed to renew my faith in him. He knew I would need strength. He knew I would need a faith family to lean on. He knew Max and Sawyer would need people to be there for them, to be the role models and be praying for them. He is wake, making my way perfect. As things were finally getting better in my life and in my heart, I was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer in August of 2014. I actually had three different types of cancer. One was very aggressive. I was told I had a 30% chance of surviving the cancer. I cannot explain to it even to this day but I was overcome with this overwhelming peace. And I knew everything would be okay. 
I've read stories of others who've had this peace and they can't explain it. But Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And it's his strength, not my own. Fast forward again, nine months into my treatments. After two surgeries, I was sitting in the radiologist's office. During my mastectomy surgery, 14 lymph nodes had to be removed. I was told that the chemo hadn't stopped the spreading of the cancer. It had just slowed it down and that I needed radiation. So here I sit, yet another doctor's office, talking to yet another doctor about yet another treatment plan. So the radiologist wanted to review with me everything that had been done in my treatment so far. As he's talking, I started crying. And it was really only about the fourth time I had cried over cancer. He stopped talking and he asked me what was wrong. And I said, I didn't know I was that sick. I really didn't. It had never crossed my mind that I could die from this. God told me from day one that I would be okay. When friends and family would cry for, for me, I kept hearing him say, I got this. I even had a really dear friend of mine get upset with me because she thought I hadn't gotten mad enough. But over and over, the words, I got this, kept repeating in my head. God had indeed given me peace. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's been a year and a half of treatments, 60 rounds of chemo that made me so sick I could barely stand some days, 30 rounds of daily radiation, trip to the ER that my brother will remember, that I don't remember, multiple MRIs, mugga scans, echocardiograms, Four surgeries later, here I stand. By God's grace, I'm cancer-free. <laughs> Deuteronomy 131. And in the wilderness, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a father carries his son, all the way you went until you reached this place. God led the Israelites out of Egypt on a path he wanted them to travel. They didn't get the easy way out. They went down God's path, and on their journey, they saw God's grace firsthand. I feel like God led me through my wilderness to bring me closer to him because I finally let go, I prayed, and I opened my heart back up. Only through him could I find my way out. Psalm 77, 19, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were never seen. God promised us he wouldn't give us more than we can handle. Trust me, Jeff told me that. That's not in his word. What he does say is that he'll carry us through it. I'm really big into song lyrics, and there's a song by Casting Crowns called Just Be Held that makes me cry every time I hear it. If your eyes are on the storm... You'll wonder if I love you still, but if your eyes are on the cross, you'll know I'll always have and always will. Not a tear is wasted, in time you'll understand, I'm painting beauty with the ashes, your life is in my hands. So when you're on your knees and answers seem so far away, you're not alone, stop holding on and just be held. Your world's not falling apart, it's falling into place. 
I'm on the throne, stop holding on and just be held. I'm often asked how everything I've been through has changed me or what I've learned. For me, no matter how much bad you hear about in the world, there's still so much good in so many people. I've learned that surrounding yourself with genuine, caring, positive, God-centered people matters. I've learned what it means to be a Christian in showing kindness and compassion to your neighbors. I've learned that I'm not alone. One more song lyric, Casting Crowns. Shine like the sun makes darkness run and hide. I praise God for this lesson and will try to teach my boys to shine for the glory of God, to show a Christian type of kindness to neighbors and strangers, and to persevere. I've learned to stop, and I've learned to pray, and I've learned to listen to the Lord, my Savior. Looking back on my life so far, I realized this just the other day. Most of my regrets in my life happened at a time when I was not walking with Jesus. Last verse, Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Vicky, we've been we've been so touched, um, and I uh, just think that Vicky's story has been uh, the greatest way to say what does that passage actually look like? What does the power of Christ? What does the power of the gospel look like in someone who's been surrendered to Him?